You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Job chapter 9. Verses 1 through 31. Job agrees with Bildad. God is great. Job answers Bildad, agreeing about some of the attributes of God, his holiness, wisdom, and power, his invisibility, and his unapproachability. For a while, when we contemplate the greatness of God, we forget our troubles. In a world of arrogant skepticism and unbelief, we must admit that God is unknowable fully. Things like miracles or the creation of the world out of nothing are impossible unless we begin with the rhetorical question, Is anything too hard for the Lord? The disciples didn't understand why Jesus was being crucified, but that was precisely when God was accomplishing his salvation. Much of this life is beyond our understanding, but it is not without purpose. Our God cannot be placed under a microscope. Such a God wouldn't be worthy of worship. For us to know anything about him, he must reveal it to us. Thankfully, he has. Job first asks, But how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? This is Job acknowledging both God's holiness and his own sinfulness. This is the most important question in the whole world for anyone to answer. How can a person be right with God? It has eternal ramifications because the answer impacts our destiny in heaven or hell forever. The entire Bible is dedicated to answering the question of man standing before God. Therefore, time spent in God's word is an investment in eternity. We each need to ask and answer this question personally and satisfactorily. In this chapter, Job is still in deep despair. He laments that if God is not fair, all hope is lost. He says he wouldn't be able to contend with God. And this has the idea of disputing his innocence or guilt before God as a criminal before a judge. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. Then he says, His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? Again, no one. A case in point is the Pharaoh of the Exodus, who hardened his heart against God, only to be defeated soundly by him. He then proves God's might by talking about how God overturns mountains and shakes the earth out of its place. He controls the sun and stars, naming a few of the northern constellations they could see and referring to the southern ones they knew to be there. He again mentions him as creator, saying, He alone stretches out the heavens. Then we get a hint of what Jesus will do when he's on earth, walking on water. It says, He treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus' control over creation was one miracle we never see the disciples duplicating. Job mentions God's invisibility. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Then he recognizes God's almighty power in the universe and man's inability to stop his will. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? We see this sentiment repeated by Nebuchadnezzar and Paul. Nebuchadnezzar says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. 
No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Paul says, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Then he demonstrates God's power over his enemies by showing how he easily defeats even proud sea monsters. And this is a poetic way of Job acknowledging that he can't fight against God. Watch for this divine warrior motif as you read through scripture. God either fights for his people or against his enemies. Then, for a moment, he envisions what it would be like if he had the opportunity to have an audience with God. He would have trouble finding the words. He couldn't make a coherent argument, and he could only beg mercy. He would even have trouble believing it was truly happening. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He rightly recognized that before God, all we can do is beg for mercy. It's a dangerous thing to demand justice, for justice would land us in hell for eternity. Thank God for his mercy, that we don't get the punishments that our sins deserve, and his grace, that we are given gifts we don't deserve and didn't earn. He again recognizes that these punishments and afflictions are from God, but feels they are without cause. He feels they are relentless, coming wave after wave, so that he feels bitterness. He admits God is strong and wonders if he'd be appointed a day in court. Finally, he admits quite clearly that he doesn't feel he is sinless, just innocent of some hidden sin. Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's good to recognize that we don't really know the depths of our sin. Our capability to deceive ourselves is great. Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? God, show us our secret sins. Then Job accuses God of being unfair and unjust, even blindfolding judges so that they don't see clearly. He claims God is destroying the blameless and the wicked in the same way, laughing at the plight of the innocent and giving the earth over to the wicked. He condemns God so that he can justify himself. And these are the things for which God will rebuke him and of which he'll repent. He adds, if it is not he, then who is it? In a universe where God is sovereign, Job concludes that even the problem of evil is under his control, so he blames God for it. And this is the view of many when they are confronted with wickedness in the world and they try to make sense of it. They blame God for it, claiming he is either not all-powerful or not good. They fail to account for why there is any good in the world at all. But the problem of evil is not answered in one sentence, and I won't attempt it here. We'll consider different aspects of it in the conclusion and as we make our way through the scriptures. Then, to show the speed at which this life is passing by, he describes a fast courier, a swift ship, or an eagle swooping down on its prey. His painful, meaningless days have filled him with despair. 
we need to recognize the short time we have on this earth and be good stewards of it. Then he says if he tried to pretend all was well and put on a happy face, then God would surely add that to his list of accusations against him. He couldn't complain and he couldn't pretend he wasn't suffering. He couldn't win. He feels condemned by God and wonders why he even tries. Even if he were to make an effort to clean himself up, to wash himself with snow water or cleanse his hands with soap, God would still plunge him into the pit. So why bother? Verses 32 to 35, Job laments that there is no mediator. Then we get to the heart of Job's complaint. In this passage, Job laments his situation. He has some serious questions for God, namely, why am I suffering? Yet he knows he is dealing with the God of the universe, and one does not just saunter into his presence and demand answers. He realizes he's not dealing with just another man whom he can take to court. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, and that we might confront each other in court. Numbers 23.19 reminds us of this as well. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Job knows he is not capable to speak on his own behalf. He longs for a mediator, someone who understands both sides and can bring them together in reconciliation. Was there no advocate, umpire, arbitrator, or referee? Was there no one who could remove God's justice? He laments, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. God complains about this in Ezekiel's day, before Israel is sent to exile. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. The high priest Eli, during the times of the judges, says to his wicked sons, If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Disputes can turn uh, ugly very quickly. It can happen in labor talks, on the baseball diamond, or in a marriage. When you have two parties, each with legitimate complaints or, and concerns, or at an impasse because neither side will compromise, you need outside help. And the form this outside help takes is important. You don't want someone who is vulnerable to accepting a bribe, one who can be threatened or coerced, or one who starts out with a bias toward one side or the other. He must be trustworthy, fair, and blameless. Moreover, he must have a clear understanding of both sides in order to bring them together. How difficult to find such a peacemaker. Job knows he needs help, someone who will put one hand on him and one on God and find a peaceful solution. Oh, Job, if you only knew that such a one would come. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. So Job isn't the only one who needs a mediator. As sinners, we are in such a predicament as well. We are rebels against the king of the universe. R.C. Sproul says we have committed cosmic treason. We are guilty before the judge of all the earth. 
there is nothing we can do to fix our situation. Moreover, we have no right to even approach this holy God to appeal for mercy. Enter the God-man Jesus. He is the eternal Son of God, and yet he took on flesh. As a man, he could understand our predicament, and as God, he could do something about it. And while it's nice that someone understands our trouble, unless they can do something about it, we're still in peril. If I was drowning and someone jumped into the water beside me, started flailing their arms and swallowing water, it wouldn't mean much to me for them to say, I know just how you feel. I don't need sympathy alone. I need help. I need a hero to save me. And that's why Jesus is the best mediator. As a man, he understands how sin has ruined us, although he himself was sinless. He knew pain, hunger, thirst, exhaustion, rejection, and oppression. But as God, he could do, also do something to relieve our situation. And that situation was our broken relationship with God. We stood condemned. C.S. Lewis has two great quotes describing our predicament. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing you have been going on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern, is repentance. And the second quote is, I'm glad at the way it came out, but at the conversion moment, what I heard was God saying, put down your gun and we'll talk. Christ is the mediator that Job could only dream about. We who live after the cross can see how our sympathetic high priest is also our deliverer. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus took the punishment, satisfying the wrath of a holy God. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, we can now approach this holy God and appeal for mercy based on the finished work of Christ. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Paul says, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. John calls Jesus our advocate. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So as a mediator between two opponents, he brings about reconciliation. He doesn't just say, why can't we all just get along? Or let's let bygones be bygones. Or boys will be boys. He provides a real solution, not just platitudes. He truly solves our sin problem. A holy God will not just overlook our offenses. At the cross, love and faithfulness meet together Righteousness and peace kiss each other.
1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Finally, Job wishes for mercy and longs for a time when he would not feel terrified by God. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. This is not that day. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? Job described some of the attributes of God, and because he is unchangeable, we can still praise him for these things and know that He is the re- that it is the reason we- he can be trusted. Job said, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. The ability to do this is tied to being the Creator. Jesus walked on water. He could control nature because he created it. Job longs for a mediator, and Jesus is that mediator. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Job chapter 10. May God bless the study of his word.